I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 380. And today in the show, we're discussing year two of our efforts to transform the meat eater back 40 into a wildlife paradise. And the roller coaster first hunt on the property this year that led to my dad's very first deer with a bow. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today is a good day. We have got a great podcast for you today, a story that I am just really, really excited to share. Um, we're coming off of one of the best, most memorable hunts of my life and probably at least to some degree, uh, our guests on the podcast here as well. Definitely one of them. The The third member might think this is an okay story. I don't know. <laughs> um, we, 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 here's who we have with me. Today on the show, we've got my father, David Kenyon, back on the show. Dad, thank you for being on the podcast again. Hey, my pleasure. And then also, oh shoot, you know what? I was going to try to check this with you before we start record, but we have Justin and I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. Is it Michelle? Michelle. Michelle. Dang it. Justin Michelle. Sorry about your name, Justin. <laughs> Everyone does. Just Man, get in line. For years, like before we actually worked together or did anything, I always pronounced it Michael. And then, <laughs> and then someone recently was like, "No, that's very wrong." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah pa and everything. I had, I think Spencer had to ask three times. So, <laughs> so, so for everyone listening, Justin um, is one of the cameramen for the Back Forty TV show. So. Justin and my dad spent a lot of time, and myself, all three of us spent a lot of time together last week hunting on the back 40. It was the first hunt of the year out there, and we had a heck of a hunt. As as I teased in the very beginning, you, you kind of get to hear the ending before you hear the beginning, but it was a successful hunt. It was an awesome hunt, but I want you guys all to understand how we got here. So I want to tell two stories that eventually become intertwined and lead us to the culmination of last week. One story is the story of the back 40, how that started this project and where that's led us to now in year two. 
all the things and hopes and goals and dreams we had in the beginning, all the changes we had to make this year based off of what we learned last year and, and everything that, that kind of came to fruition for us um, in early October. And then the second story I want to explore a little bit is my dad's story and what led him to this hunt in this past week, because I think there's some interesting things we can learn from both of those stories. And those stories come together in a really cool way and will come together in a really cool way in uh, episode four of season two of The Back 40, which uh, for all those listening now, that first episode of the season will come out on November 1st, I believe, or at least sometime in early November. And then Dad's Hunt will be episode four, which will probably be towards the end of November. Uh, So you're going to get a sneak peek as far as the story right now. So I guess what I would like you two to do, if you're willing, is jump in at any point. I'm going to kind of set the stage here with, with a little bit of a recap on the back 40. But if you guys have any questions or if you guys need to clarify something or if you think I'm totally off base on something and you want to call BS, you can just jump in and say that. (laughs) Um, You know, Dad, you got to see the farm last year a couple times. You got to hunt it last year. Justin, you weren't here last year, but obviously this summer you got to be part of a lot of that work um, in August and, and now this hunt. So you guys both have a different perspective and I think that can help kind of color what I'm trying to share too. So... That is the game plan. Dad, are you on board for that? You bet. Justin, Justin, are you on board for that? For sure. Let's do it. All right. So let's set the stage from the beginning for anyone who's new about what this whole Back 40 thing is. The Back 40 is a project that we started over at Meat Eater in which we wanted to find and eventually purchase a small property, kind of a unremarkable, nondescript property, uh, and see if we could transform this little piece of ground into something really special. Could we take a small farm? In this case, we found a 64-acre farm that was about half old fields, half timber and swamp. Could we change this thing that had not been managed in the past? Could we change this thing and transform it into a great deer hunting property and a great general holistic ecosystem for everything? Could we manage not just for big deer, but could we manage for bees and butterflies and birds and small mammals and turkeys and native plant life and good soil? Could we try to do the right thing for everything and still have our cake too, right? Have our deer, our big deer, our our fun hunting. Can you do it all? That was the question. That's what we tried to do and try to, to learn about what does that mean and how you can be a good steward while also having something you can harvest from the land as well. And that led us to finding this little place last year, purchasing it, started to do some work. We did some initial habitat improvements last year, but it was all very last minute. Um, We just got started in August, basically. We got to put in a few small food plots. Um, We got, I tried to plant some plot screens, basically some tall sorghum, which I hoped was going to break up these wide open fields. But a lot of that stuff did not work out very well. Um, to further illustrate what we're working with here, just a little bit in case you aren't familiar with all this, the 64 acres, as I mentioned, it's about half timber and swamp, half old fields. Uh, the old fields mostly last year were just this uh, invasive mare's tail weed and a little bit of goldenrod. Then you had this big swamp in the middle, and that was really the 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 hub of the wheel of this property. That was the the thing that I was most excited about and that I thought would be um, 
the saving grace of this property because at least in places like Southern Michigan that have a lot of hunters, I've come to find that you really need something like that, some kind of really great security cover to to keep at least the occasional older deer around. So whenever I find a deep swamp, I know there's at least a chance that some good deer could be in there. Um, while in otherwise open timber or ag country, it's just it's just tougher to find them around me at least. So that's what I thought we had. I had searched out a property that had that kind of feature while also being in an area that generally from everything I could find out from any research I did from talking to neighbors that generally seemed to be in a good neighborhood. So surrounded by folks that were thinking somewhat similarly to how we were, which was trying to manage for wildlife, trying to manage for more deer or older deer or a better managed balanced deer herd. That's what we were hoping to accomplish. And, and I tried to find a place where that seemed to be on the minds of other people too. So that is what we had last year. Um, you know, the hunting season did not go the way I was hoping it would. Um, a lot of the habitat improvements I tried to make, as I just described, didn't come in. The food plots were, you know, not as impactful as I thought they might be. They came in pretty thin and sparse. Um, I think we probably only had an acre and a half of food total, maybe. The screens that I tried to plant basically failed completely. And so these fields were just wide open. That mare's tail lost its leaves once the fall arrived and it was just just barren, kind of a desert for wildlife. And because of that, very little deer traffic in those things, in those areas during daylight. And it led to some relatively uneventful hunting. Um, I saw some deer the first couple nights and then it quickly quickly decreased, had a bunch of dud hunts, hunted during the rut and saw very little deer activity, kind of got lucky on the fourth day of our rut hunt. And, uh, there was a big mature buck in the area, not very big antler wise, but a big bodied mature deer, the white eight, I called him and I did get a crack at him. Uh, but that was the only decent buck we saw all season. The only mature buck we saw all season, um, so at a high level, frustrating, disappointing. And dad, you came out, you got to have this hunt. And I know you were really excited to come out in the back 40. I've been kind of hyping up this property we had and we were trying to improve. And I wanted to get you this great opportunity to, to get a crack at a buck with your crossbow. And um, it, it didn't really pan out the way we were hoping, did it? No, no, not not as much as we had hoped, obviously. And and because of all the work that you had done, even though I know it just started in August, um, you had still done an awful lot of work to to you know prepare the property and all the work on the food plots, et cetera. And then just just you know the the excitement of being out there. I was looking forward to seeing a lot of deer, and um, just saw a couple and passed on that five. Um, uh, and that was pretty much it for yeah, the time we were out was, there. Uh, you know, we'll elaborate on this more, but most of your hunting has been up in Northern Michigan where we just don't see very many deer. So I had these high hopes of bringing you down to the Southern part of the state, or at least farther South than we traditionally do. And, yeah. uh, being in a higher deer density area, you'd, you'd have an exciting hunt and it just didn't pan out. So yeah, it was, it was one of many disappointments last year. <laughs> um, Justin, you watched the back 40. I'm assuming, maybe you didn't, but I'm assuming you watched the back 40 uh, last year. From Never a, seen it. <laughs> from, from what? Yeah, from afar. From afar, uh, what, were, what were your thoughts on the, on the whole idea, the gist of what we tried to do and then what you saw after year one? Was it, was it surprising? Does it, was it kind of what you expected from year one of this kind of thing? Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you have any 
thoughts from that first year? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I love the idea of it because I, I thought that what it, what it did was, um, created a situation that so many people have, you know, like, um, not everyone has the luxury of getting three, four or 500 acre pieces or leases and things like that. But, um, you know, 63 acres is not out of the question. So, and it's, and it's not like you adopted, uh, even a, a piece that was already established well enough that you could sort of piggyback on it. You know, it was like, it really was super stripped down, which I guess in a sense gave you, uh, you know, you could do whatever you wanted. I, I never, quite understood why and i was going to ask you as you were going through that like what did you think failed as far as like what what were the causes of of the plots and everything just not uh taken off like it did this year Mm, okay so there's a few things i can point to and then there's still some unknowns um i think you know, one thing that I knew going into is that these old fields, I just didn't know if they would stay thick into the hunting season. And and then if they did not, you know, would it hold any wildlife at all? And so I, I tried to plant that screening cover. I knew that getting some kind of visual barriers to break up these fields, to have some structure, I knew that was going to be really important. So I tried to plant those things, but I tried to plant them in a no-till way. And and this is because we've been trying to adopt this regenerative agriculture practice when planting food plots and crops on the farm where you try to avoid disturbing the soil um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. By not plowing the soil, you can keep more nutrient uh, micro- microbial life going in the soil. There's a, there's a lot of things that you keep in the ground that you want in the ground by not plowing it up. So early last year, I guess early summer, um, when I knew I needed to plant the screening cover, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I plant this stuff no-till when I don't have a no-till drill? Uh, We didn't have a drill yet. We later got a drill, um, but I didn't have one at that point. So I'd heard of approach called throw and mow. Basically, the idea was that you could um, broadcast seed over an area and then mow all the brush that was there over top of it and if you could do that right around a rain, you would get the seed on top of the soil and then the grass and brush would fall on top of the seed and then it would form a layer of mulch that would hold moisture tight to that seed on the ground and get you germination. That's the idea. And and this works. People say this works and it's a productive way to plant no-till food plots if you don't have the equipment. Um, it just didn't work well for us. I it didn't work. So there were a few places we got some to grow, but there was a lot that simply didn't come up at all. So because of that, I didn't have the cover we wanted. I came in and actually tried to plant screens again the first week of August. And I actually did try to lightly work the soil and get something planted there. And I got a little growth, but it wasn't, you know, it just didn't have enough time. So that gave us no structure, no visual barriers across the fields. And then, as I described earlier, the cover that was in there, the mare's tail, it essentially becomes like a beanstalk with no leaves, no beans, nothing on it. So it was it was the worst kind of old field you could ask for. So you had just a wide open, barren field, which I think was just a 
much more of a detriment than I, you know, was imagining it would be. Didn't think it would be that bad, uh, but it was. So that was a big thing. As far as the food plots, I don't know what I did wrong last year, but it was my first time ever using a no-till drill. It was my first time using a mix quite like that. And for some reason, the crops didn't come in as full as I thought they would have. I think one thing I have learned, I've been using uh, a Genesis 3 by RTP Outdoors, which is a drill you can pull behind your UTV, and it's it's great. I love it. Um, but what I've learned, and I think this is the, probably the case with any drill, this is just the first time I've ever used a drill, is that making one pass, it's really easy. I thought I'll just go over everything once and then that would cover it all. But you kind of forget that it's easy to miss a row or it's easy to miss a spot. Or even when you have these kind of evenly spaced rows, there's a lot of space in between still. Um, and I probably should have done like almost a, like a checkerboard pattern. Maybe should have done a bunch of runs up one way and then come across and crisscross them or something just to completely fill it out better. I didn't do that. So in short, I underseeded last year. So between underseeding and maybe not knowing exactly how to set the seed rate properly or different things, I was just sort of figuring out. And then finally, um, I just for some reason did not get good germination of the brassicas within our plot mix. So I had a lot of oats and wheat, but the brassicas didn't take at all almost. So I had some good early, early season attracting uh, food, but then nothing for the rest of the season. And so for all those reasons uh, and the fact that I just didn't have a lot planted, again, last minute trying to get something in the ground quick, I was worried about also making the plots too big. Uh, because I was worried about being able to get in and out of the farm without spooking deer. So I thought if I keep the plots really tiny and you know, if I keep them narrow and in these little low spots, we might be able to sneak around without deer seeing us and spooking all the time. Um, I thought that was, I thought that would be okay. And I'd have some of these little, these little ice cream shops spread out around the property and there'd be enough deer in the area using the swamp and traveling back and forth that I didn't need a ton of food in the farm. That's what my thought was. But as the season progressed, I realized that wasn't the case. Um, we just did not have a lot of deer spending time in the farm, not a lot of deer passing through. Um, other than one or two hunts, almost every sit was like one deer, two deer, no deer. Yeah, It was very, very, very slow, um, which led me to this year, the spring, thinking, okay, probably the two very most important things we need to do are related to these old fields. And that is number one, thicken them up, find some way to turn this wasteland into some place that wildlife actually want to spend in daylight. So that was number one. And then number two, dramatically increase the quantity and quality of the food. Those are the two very most important things I saw that would be able to transform this to, to at least be a, a viable place to see, you know, see a lot of deer and turkeys and other critters. So that is, that was where my head was at as 2019 wrapped up, um, which leads us to 2020. 2020, we had a lot of high hopes. We had big plans, uh, a lot of big products we wanted, we wanted to try. And then COVID hit and all of our spring plans, all of our spring guests, all of our spring projects basically got canceled and put on the back burner and just just really changed a lot of what we were going to do. So I kind of just threw together a couple little things I could do by myself or with a couple local people that could help me with things. Um, but I was able to do a couple things that did make a difference. 
one thing I was able to do to address these old fields was I wanted to get some new base of grassy cover out there. So we frosted switchgrass. The way I did this is I first applied an herbicide treatment to large swaths of these old fields that would kill off the mare's tail and stop anything else like that from growing up and give the switchgrass a chance to grow. That worked. I frost seeded the switchgrass. Frost seeding, for those that aren't familiar, is basically going in and, and just broadcasting. So, so spreading seed on top of the ground during the early, early spring when there's still freezing and thawing happening. So when you're still going to get hard frost and then thaws and freeze and thaw, when that happens, the ground expands and contracts, expands and contracts, and it, it slowly settles the seed down into the ground by virtue of that effect. So that's what I did. And this had two, one expected benefit, one unexpected benefit. The expected was that the herbicide treatment knocked out the mare's tail and it allowed the, some of the switchgrass to get, a, to get going. The second thing, which I guess I knew in theory, but I wasn't thinking about, is that not only did it remove the mare's tail to help the switchgrass, but even in places where the switchgrass didn't come in great, what it did do is it opened up possibilities for all the other seeds that were already in the seed bank. So what came up across all these old fields was a, a vastly more diverse, thick, lush blanket of different types of vegetation. So we got all sorts of different types of grasses, as well as my switchgrass that I planted. We got a number of different big bushy, oh, everything from goldenrod to, oh gosh, I'm blanking on some of the different things I've seen out there now. But if you were to go and look at what these old fields looked like last summer versus the end of this summer, it, it it's it's like the difference between looking at a monoculture soybean field and looking at a wildflower garden where there's just all yeah. these different types of things. Uh, speaking yeah, you of, know, it's funny, Mark, because when you say that, I'm sorry for interrupting, but you, know, you, you just really um, called out the way I felt about it this year. I couldn't believe the difference. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of forgot about how monoculture everything was last year. But when I saw it this year, it was just just um, uh, so green and so full and so rich. Um, it was hard for me to remember what it was like last year, uh, just dramatically different. And what made me really think about that was when you mentioned the goldenrods. There were some wildflowers everywhere throughout the, the property. Just incredible. Yeah, a lot of just just a lot more vegetation at different heights, at different widths. Um, it's it's just, we've seen a tremendous amount of bird life, butterflies, bugs. Um, we, we flushed a woodcock last week. Do you remember that, Justin? Um, yeah, we did. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I was there with you too. Oh, yeah, yeah. you were. It's just really hard for me to believe, hard for me to believe <laughs> that this change occurred in one year. It, it is just dramatic. And, and I remember I asked you that, Mark. You know, I said, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to believe that this could happen in one year and that the change be so pervasive and so broad across the property. Um, it, it feels like you should have been working on this for three or four years to see that kind of result. Well, I'd love to take credit for it all myself. <laughs> but but I, I also think that a lot of this a lot of this goes back to just the power of Mother Nature, right? Sometimes if we just if we get some of 
if we clear a few obstacles out of the way, Mother Nature can do amazing things if we let it do what it naturally wants to do. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we've tried to do here. And so by removing one invasive species, which is this mare's tail that came in here, and the reason why it came in here is because the farm used to be you know, farmed over and over and over and over and over and over and over again the same way. And then when it stopped, when they stopped farming it like that, the very first thing that's able to take a, a foothold is this invasive weed, mare's tail, and a few other things like it. So, so that's what took over this farm and took over these fields. But, but naturally, nature doesn't want that. Nature does not want a monoculture. There's no monoculture in, in the real world unless humans put it there or influenced it in some way. Nature wants diversity. And so what I did is we use a little human intervention to knock out that monoculture. And then mother nature came right back in and filled it in with all the good stuff that, that she wanted to. And that ends up being great for all the deer and birds and, and everything. Um, so a little bit of what I'm finding is that you can press certain buttons, you can make an influence here or there, but it, but it kind of comes down to finding ways to not fight nature, but kind of open up. It's like rather than trying to build a dam and dam up a river, I'd rather work with the river and maybe put a, put a log here that moves the current a little more to the left, or maybe I'm going to put a boulder in the river over here. So it flows a little more to the right, or maybe Mm -hmm. if there's a dam in the river over here, I'm going to open up a couple holes in it and, and try to find ways to, to do what mother nature wants to do, but, but maybe just influence it to help us in certain ways. Um, but when it's, when it's kind of that give and take and you try to harness the power of what's already going on, that seems to be when you see the most success and, and maybe that's what's going on here. Um, and, and that certainly has been the case with those old fields. I also did do a little bit of seeding of some pockets of wildflowers. So I did some of that myself, but, a lot of it naturally seeded all over the place. So that was the case where I tried to help it along, but but nature did a whole lot more than I did there. Mark, how much do you think the uh, the the uh, resident bee population that you put in made an impact on just the diversity and the, the flowering plants in particular, obviously, were impacted by that to some extent. Did that have any impact, do you think, or not? You know, I have no way to, to be able to quantify that because, yeah, I forgot to mention, we, we brought in two honeybee hives onto the property, which, which they're definitely helping with pollinating. There's something like a hundred thousand bees between those two hives. So there's a lot of new pollinators on the landscape. I just don't know how to put any kind of figure behind that and and tell you if it makes a noticeable difference. But I do know that, I mean, there are certainly farmers out there who bring in honeybee hives at certain parts of the year to make sure their crops get pollinated well enough. Um, and, and we do know across a large parts of the country, we're having significant reductions in pollinator species and honeybees and other bugs like that. There's some real issues with, with bugs out there, very important bugs that are doing important things for our crops and our plant life. So I think you certainly could say that they must have helped some. I just don't know. I don't know how to, how to put a value on it, but it certainly didn't, certainly didn't hurt. That's for sure. Well, it's interesting you use that like that dam or the the river flow analogy, um, but because I was thinking, uh, man, uh, you know, I climbed and was like crawling through so much of that stuff filming that uh, I mean, I saw. I don't know what was there last year, but it's like 
when you go in and you do your part to get rid of that monoculture, um, it's like everything that should be there ended up there this year. You know what I mean? It's like there, I mean, I don't know how far ahead you want to get, but, uh, man, so many deer, so many insects, tons of, not that we want coyotes, but I mean, everything just seemed to be in place this year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a jungle. And, uh, and that's what all these critters wanted. So it was cool to see that happen. And it was cool to see that some of that switchgrass did come in. So we've got a base of grass with this diversity of other things around it. Uh, we planted some of those wildflowers. I also did try planting those sorghum screens again. And what I took from last year was that, you know what? I want to practice regenerative agriculture in a lot of ways. We want to experiment with it and learn about it. But I don't know how to make it work with these screens. I really need this screening cover in these old fields. We needed that vertical visual barrier to to keep these things from being 10-acre open fields and instead be compartmentalized and have this diversity of, of height and security for deer and other animals. So I decided that we were going to lightly disc a few spots to get that in. It's a compromise I had to make. Um, and I think for the greater, I don't know what, but it worked. <laughs> Long well, story yeah, short, it, it made a big difference. It made a big difference. I mean, you could just see, again, jumping ahead a little bit. When we sat in that blind, looking out over the the, um, uh, the food plot and looking to the left and looking to the right, you could see those screens on all four sides of us, right? And you could see why it made the deer feel comfortable. Uh, it was funny because when we were up on the tree stand, you know, I could see them across there, but it wasn't until I got on the ground again and looked around me after, you know, the next day and that sort of thing, and then realized just how tall those were. Those had to be eight, 10 foot tall screens. Um, it, it, it provided a lot of cover and protection for the deer. Yeah. So for people at home, try to envision this. Imagine you had six fields that last year essentially were like dried soybean fields. If you've ever been in a soybean field after the leaves fall off, they're just those little gray stalks. Um, and that's, that's it. That's kind of what the fields were like last year. Now this year, imagine those six old fields, which total about 30, 32 acres of our property. So about half now imagine those fields now have, you know, hip to chest height to shoulder height, in some case, tall, weeds and bushes and grasses and all this different stuff that's everywhere and then in each one of these fields some of them more some of them less we have long strips sometimes it was a straight line sometimes it's a half circle of this crop of sorghum which essentially it looks like corn but it's grown to 12 13 14 foot tall so you have these walls and these half circles of what looks like corn which is totally creating these big barriers. Essentially, it's like a jungle of trees in this area that now is spread out in different pockets across these fields. So instead of being a wide open, wide open bean field, essentially, now you almost have a CRP field mixed with forest kind of created in a haphazard way in one year. Um, you get that kind of effect at least. So all of a sudden, deer can walk out there and instead of feeling like they're in the open 10 acres, they can be in a little area of a half acre and they don't realize that there's all this other stuff around them because they're enclosed and they feel 
a lot more comfortable. The, the idea is that hypothetically, they'd feel a lot more comfortable coming out there. That was the hope coming into this hunting season. So we did the screens, we did the herbicide treatment, we planted the switchgrass, we planted the wildflowers. In August, we came in and we planted trees. We planted pockets of trees across the property, across all these old fields. We mowed out little areas, maybe, I don't know, 10 yards by 10 yards wide, little circles, and we would plant three or four or five evergreen trees in each one of these pockets. And I tried to choose areas where there's little rises in the topography that might be the kind of spot that someday a few deer might want to bed, where this winter I did see some deer beds, um, places where, where wildlife would naturally want to be if they had the cover they needed there. And that's where I planted these pockets of evergreens. We planted some white pine, some white cedar, some spruce, um, a few things like that. So the idea here is that these grasses that we planted, the sorghum we planted, the all the native stuff that came up, that all helps right now. But a long-term solution to get more, you know, long-term cover and structure out there that we don't need to continuously be replanting like we will with the sorghum, trees eventually in year one, year two, year three down the road, those are going to grow out. They're going to fill out. They're going to become these little islands of a different type of cover out there where deer can bed, where rabbits can hide, where birds can nest, you again have a different type of cover out there. So we keep adding diversity. So we went from this same blank canvas to now a canvas that has splotches of all these different things all over the place. And that's what nature wants. That's what deer want. That's what turkeys want. They want edge. They want diversity. They want security. With the trees, we added a new bit of that. And this year, it's not going to do a ton for us because they're young trees. They're three foot, four foot tall trees. They're spaced out. But a couple of years from now, whoever's hunting and enjoying this place, I think is going to see a lot of activity going from tree pocket to tree pocket and little bedding areas, a couple of does here and there, bucks checking these spots, um, signposting on these spots. I think it's going to be very cool down the road. So that's another thing we did. We then went on and worked on version two of the food plots. Version two of the food plots was trying to address all those issues I listed out to you earlier. So I tried to plant um, a little thicker than I did last year. I tried to um, not only um, make sure I got my mix right, but also I wanted to cover off and kind of give myself a safety valve on that so that even if I underseeded with the drill too much, I was going to go over top of it and broadcast a mix of brassicas as well. So basically that, that late season food source that we didn't get last year, I was a little worried that by drilling it in there with the oats and wheat and all that stuff, maybe it, was, it was, wasn't getting the right soil depth or for whatever reason wasn't coming up well within that mix. So I, I drilled in a mix from uh, drop time seed. It was, this, it was called the fall reload, which was a mixture of brassicas and oats and clovers and triticale and I don't know, all, all sorts of different things, rape and turnips. Drilled that in and then we went over top of it all and just broadcast more brassicas to spread out all, all over to fill in any gaps we might have had um, just to cover off on any mistakes when it came to my seeding. So I did that. And maybe most importantly, I significantly increased the size of these food plots. We went from about an acre and a half of plots last year to somewhere around three, three and a half acres this year. 
So essentially 3x or close to 3x the, the quantity of food on the property. And we also changed the design of the food plots a little bit. Last year, I kind of plopped them down a few places and I was worried about them being too big. And this year, I kind of learned after seeing how some deer use the property last year, I learned how the deer wanted to travel. And I discovered that there were some, some spots that I wanted to hunt last year, but the wind would be blowing to where deer wanted to go to. And so they'd come into our food plots, but because of where I put those plots, when they did come into them, they'd eventually get into my wind. Uh, this year, I rechanged that. I, I, I changed the direction some of these plots moved. I went more from a, like a square shape for those plots to long linear shaped plots, um, kind of like a, a highway of green stretching across a couple different places. This is an idea that Jeff Sturgis really pounded home with me and with a lot of people took his idea and, and implemented that here. Um, so that's what we did from the food plot perspective. The last thing we did, and this was done this spring, I forgot to mention this, but we did some improvements to the area we call the honey hole. This honey hole is this ridge that runs along one part of the property that last year we found out had a native prairie, a remnant native prairie ecosystem in there. So it's a part of the property where there is still the native grassland species that we had 100 years ago, 200 years ago, before we farmed everything down. We have a little pocket of this stuff. It's big blue stem grass, little blue stem grass, a bunch of other species that I can't remember the names of, but we had an ecologist come out and he told us that this was a really special rare place that we, we should really try to nurture. Um, he recommended to do that. We should cut down all the trees and the brush in there and we should burn it. Now that kind of concerned me though, because this area was full of cedar trees and autumn olive and buckthorn and just thick, nasty bushes and, and great looking deer habitat. So one of the big questions last year was, can we do the thing that, that our ecologist, Dan, is recommending we do to, to nurture this native prairie while still keeping the good deer habitat in there? That was the question. The way I tried to answer it this year was to do a little bit of both. I tried to remove some of the autumn olive and buckthorn by going in there early this spring and cutting down a bunch of that and then applying an herbicide to the trunk of those cut trees to keep them from coming back. So I cut out pockets of it. I didn't cut it all out, but I cut out pockets. So instead of a big wide open ridge of just grass, it was coves and little bays and some strips and some openings, but then other openings or other spots where there still were cedars, there still were bushes. So again, diversity. And then we did go in there and do a prescribed fire in May, April, April, I guess, April or May, somewhere in there. We did a prescribed burn with the help of Dan and burned it, which essentially takes all the old stuff, the dead thatch that was out there, removes any leaf litter, dead grass, anything that was on top of the soil. So it opens up everything to new sunlight. It That heat kind of reinvigorates the soil and the nutrient life in there and kind of makes everything more fertile. It brings in a thicker, uh, more diverse uh, growth the next summer after the burn. And, and that's what we saw when we came back in later in the year and took a look at the honey hole after the burn, you know, Justin, you were there with me when we walked in there, not only was there tons of grass and flowers and all sorts of different things in there now, but there was still deer beds everywhere, deer turds everywhere. I mean, the place was littered with deer sign. So we, we improved and, and helped nurture along that native prairie, but we made it maybe even better for deer. Um, which was, again, a really nice um, 
illustration or example of of something that we're trying to do, trying to do both of these things, you know? So that was what we did from a habitat perspective. Do you feel like I missed anything, Justin, that you saw or that's worth bringing up? Well, I, it was interesting to me that as we were going through that after the burn and a- after the regrowth that, I mean, that, that big blue stem was chest and head high. I mean, it, it looked so rich and you know, what we noticed too was like, that was definitely something that you wanted to kind of nurture back, you know, from a, a state that, you know, like you said, when the farm came through, it kind of like uh, jarred everything backwards. But, you know, we noticed when we were sitting in that blind the first night that that big blue stem now has like started to seed itself outside of the honey hole where it was originally burned. Yeah. Exactly, which is awesome to see. It's it's going to continue to expand its footprint, and uh, that's another example of just kind of help Mother Nature along and, and let her do her thing. And uh, I think we're starting to see that too. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. So from a habitat perspective, that's what we did. Um, We also made some hunting changes. Primarily, the biggest things we did... um, in August was try to better set up the property for our guest hunters. 
last year. Um, everything came together kind of last minute. So I did some scouting. I kind of prepped some trees to hunt with a saddle, but I didn't really have anything very well set up for our guests, people that weren't going to hunt from a saddle or a portable tree stand. So like for my hunt with you, dad, I just had some ground blinds that I had to pop up at the last minute. Um, and you know, I think for both of us, it was hard to see from those. It was bad, not great positioning. Um, uh, would you agree that those ground blind setups were okay, but certainly not nearly as ideal as the setup we had this time around? Oh, no comparison. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, what we had this time was phenomenal. Yeah, so so what we had this time was we decided to get uh, three big tower blinds. Um, uh, the ones we got are called landmark blinds. They're from a company called River's Edge. And basically it's it's like a box blind up on a tower. But instead of being made from wood or fiberglass or anything like that, this is just like a metal frame with waterproof canvas exterior, um, which was relatively easy. I mean, it, it was a challenge to put together a little bit. And I got to tell you that we had some guys from the company come and help us. A guy in particular, Jake, your godsend. Thank you for your help. He came out and helped us put together some of these. Um, uh, but it, what, they're not crazy heavy. They're not crazy hard to move around. It ended up being a pretty cool thing that we were able to do with myself and Tony Peterson. Um, we were able to put up one of them by ourselves. And then Justin and Charlie, other cameraman, helped us with a couple more. So we have these three 10-foot tall towers with a box blind on top that we set up in three different fields overlooking some of these food plots. Each one of these I put next to a bedding area. So every one of these setups is next to a food plot that's right on the edge of one of our best bedding areas in the farm. And one of them was set up just outside the honey hole, as you alluded to, Justin. One of them was set up in field number four, right by where you and I hunted last year, Dad. And then one of them was in field three on the west side of the property so we'd have one east wind spot um and yeah i was hoping for something that would give people a better view as far as distance that would give people better shot opportunities that would um you know just just be much better positioned for for you dad or for our hunt winner that's coming out later this year or our new hunter that's coming out this year um i'm hoping for a more comfortable more productive sets for those people and uh yeah and and that led us to the first hunt to, to test run all these things, which just happened last week. Um, so that's the story on the habitat stuff. Dad, do you have any questions as far as habitat or anything else you want to bring up as, as far as what you saw or things you were curious about? Um, anything as far as the farm and the changes we made or things like that? Well, you know, all I would say is just reiterating the things that you've already brought up. I was really surprised at the difference. And I didn't spend a lot of time um, at the farm, you know, last year, a couple of days, but just the, just the difference in the, uh, on the cover, particularly the sorghum and the, you know, the food plot layouts. I mean, it was, it was like being on a, I guess it was for all sorts of purposes. I was hunting on a completely different property. Um, and just the, the difference was so dramatic to me. I was really surprised. Yeah. Um, and back to those, uh, those, uh, 
uh, elevated blinds. The other thing I really liked about those was the, the flexibility you had in, in the windows, right? Setting yeah. those up and opening them and closing. And we had a couple, several times where we just had a, you know, an inch, inch and a half um, uh, crack basically in the back or on the side, just enough that you could kind of look through it and, and get an idea for if there were deer uh, coming through. I think it just, the whole setup was a lot more um, conducive to really being stealth and really um, uh, having not just a comfortable sit, but also being well positioned when you did see deer. Yeah. Yeah. The windows, I really do like those. You essentially have sliding canvas. I don't know. It, it means it's just the canvas exterior, but they're almost like how you can slide curtains, but these curtains could go either horizontally or vertically. So you can slide them left and right, or you could slide them up and down and essentially customize whatever size or shape opening you want. If you want vertical windows, you can make them. If you want horizontal windows, you can make them. I really like that. Um, okay. So that brings us to the beginning of hunting season. Um, this hunt was exciting for me for two reasons, particularly exciting for me for two reasons. One was on the selfish side, and that was I wanted to see the results of everything we did. As I just described, you know, I, I, I put a lot of work in. We all put in a lot of work this spring and summer, whether it be the camera guys like you, Justin, whether it be the guests that came out and helped me. Um, you know, there was a lot of time and sweat and energy put in this. So big thank you to people like Doug Duran, Dan Jajo, Tony Peterson, Dan Zay, um, Rob Hawbury, Nick George, all the various folks over the course of the year that have lent a hand. Thank you. Um, so all of that just had me so interested and excited to, to see, okay, can you actually change something in a year and see a big difference the way I was hoping you could? So the first hunt, obviously, is the real litmus test of that. So I was excited for that. But number two, I was really excited because I was trying to, I wanted to fulfill a promise or fulfill a, a hope that I had that we started last year, which is helping you, Dad, have a really special hunt. Um, and, you know, as some folks have heard in some of our prior podcasts, um, last year's episode, um, you know, you've dealt with a variety of challenges over the course of your hunting life that have made things tougher than some other people. And you haven't, whether it be some stuff you've dealt with or the places you've hunted, you know, our deer camp up north, you don't see a lot of deer. There's a number of things that have just kind of made it tougher for you to have a good chance at a buck or a deer of any kind with your bow. And I thought, man, we're going to get my dad down here in the back 40 and we're going to get him that first deer with a bow or we're going to get you your biggest buck ever. And last year was just a flop. So I thought maybe this is the year we could do it. Uh, and so many of the changes I made, I was actually thinking specifically about this hunt. So really setting up these blinds and food plots and locations, thinking about, okay, on October 5th, where do I need to have this tower blind so my dad's going to get a good crack at a buck? Um, so all that was leading up to this point. Um, so that's where my head was at. Dad, would you be willing at all to talk to me a little bit about, or talk to us a little bit about where your head was at leading up to this? Um, and kind of talk about some of the challenges you've dealt with leading up to this, um, with sure. getting into archery and bow hunting. Um, I think getting a little history there would be helpful to kind of color, color this whole week. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you know, Mark, we've hunted for a long time as a family, right? Uh, Grandpa had me out in the woods hunting when I was four or five years old, like I had you out in the woods when you were four or five years old. <clears throat> the difference was we always uh, rifle hunted. So we really did very little bow hunting when I grew up, very little. Grandpa had a straight bow, but I don't think I ever saw him shoot it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> for us, it was just, and, and, and we, we, we uh, for us, November 15th through the 30th was hunting season. That's when we went up and when we got the cabin and, you know, we had the, you know, it was a, it was a religious rite. We went up there, on, you know, the day before, or maybe two days before opening day. And uh, we stayed that entire week if we could or came up the following weekend and, and Thanksgiving weekend. And um, as you know, um, you know, our cabin up north, uh, uh, we had a lot of deer for a number of deer, never big deer uh, 20, 25 years ago. But that kind of for whatever reason, um, the number of deer. Um, leveled off quite a bit 10, 15 years ago. And uh, so, you know, we still went up as a family. We still did our hunt, but we had really low expectations about, you know, the number of deer we're going to see and the number of antlers we're going to see. And every once, you know, occasionally every year or two, we'd get a deer between the four or five of us that went up, but uh, just not not the numbers and, and the quantity. So, I mean, I, that's part of what I was so excited about. Not, not that I don't love to hunt it up at the cabin because I really do, but it's for, to some extent, it's for different reasons. You know, I'd love to see a big uh, uh, buck, a mature deer walk out in front of me, but I don't typically expect that. Um, so, yeah, back to your, your point about, you know, some of the challenges. Um, so I've always rifle hunted. Uh, my entire life. And as, uh, as you know, and we've talked about before, um, you know, I'm, I have uh, low vision, uh, visually impaired. So for me, um, basically what my vision is uh, without correction is what you can see at 200 feet. I see at 20 feet. Um, and, you know, I have a, a telescope, a small telescope in my glasses that gives me a magnified vision of, of whatever it is I'm looking at. But it's really hard to use something like that in the woods, right? It, it just doesn't work well at all. And uh, as you and I talked about, Mark, you know, you asked me um, sometime over the week, you said, well, gee, Dad, why, do you, why, do you, why aren't you wearing your glasses with the telescope in it uh, when we go out in the woods? And what I explained was um, I used to do that. I used to do that all the time. And I spooked a lot of deer because of that. <laughs> because there's a, you know, going between the, the, you know, the glasses um, the binoculars, and then ultimately your scope on your rifle or on your crossbow, uh, there's just too much movement. It, it's too difficult to do all of that, be able to see the deer, see the movement, see the, you know, whatever it is you're, you're trying to determine is a deer or not, and, um, and just not spook. So um, I tried something different the last couple of, of hunts where I just have left the glasses behind. And um, uh, so I'm particularly blind in that case. But the advantage is it minimizes the amount of movement and the blind so that I'm basically working between the binoculars and, and the scope and use the binoculars for the most part because that gives me the ability to be able to, to see the deer. So, you know, those are some challenges that I've had. I guess the other thing is because um, you and I, um, and I can't recall whether it was your idea or my idea or both, you know, we got into bow hunting back in the early 2000s, Right. And went out and bought a couple of compound bows, and um, uh, you know you took to that right away, and that was that was really your passion pretty quickly. Um, and and I was always kind of a casual hunter with a bow, um, go out behind the house or up at Kenroven or whatever. 
but uh, you know, I'm honest and, and would say that I've never had the, uh, the certainly the level of proficiency and the level of skill that you have. Um, and you know, that's kind of compounded by, uh, for me, it's quite honestly, uh, it's really difficult for me to see the target. So um, that's why 10 years ago or so, maybe eight years ago, I moved over to a crossbow. Not so much because of the crossbow itself, but because you could use a scope. For me, that gives me the the ability to be able to, you know, see the animal and uh, make sure that I can get a, a a good bearing on it. So, you know, those are some of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I just say in general, everybody has something. Some of us have physical elements. Some of us have uh, other kinds of challenges that we work with in life. And um, so I don't consider that to be any different than anybody else. I just have to overcome them in different ways. And that's how I did it. Did hunting has, has you make it sound really easy when you say all that. <laughs> that's what I think I'm going to get at. You make it sound really easy. Um, but I don't think it has been. Has it been tough? Have you had times when you thought, why am I doing this? Or can I do this? Or have you done things and thought, you know, this is never going to come together because I, I know that the the vision, I, 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 we've said this a thousand times, I never can really know what it is that you're seeing and experiencing, but I can, I, I know it can't be easy. Um, how have you, how has that, uh, I'm having a horrible time coming up with the right question here, dad, yeah, but, but yeah, maybe you're, you're, you're my dad and you get me. Do you, do you get what yeah, I'm trying do, to say? I do. I do. Tell, I do. How, I do. how have you dealt with that? Yeah, well, you know, quite honestly, uh, there was quite a bit of time, a good part of that period of time where I went hunting, um, fully expecting that I wasn't going to see a deer, <laughs> fully expecting I wasn't going to shoot anything. And, and that does, at, you know, at first you kind of work your way through that. and But after a while, that does get a little discouraging. So I think, you know, when, um, uh, when all that really began to change uh, four, five, six years ago, and a lot of that was because of you, Mark. I mean, I think you've certainly taught me a lot, but I think also we've had the opportunity to do a lot of these things together, right? And uh, uh, I think I think the just being able to get out of the woods, have the opportunity to really um, uh, sit and have the opportunity. And, and I guess maybe just not take it. So when I say not take it so seriously, I don't mean I don't mean not try to be the best hunter you can be, but not not um, take it as a personal affront if you don't see a deer or shoot a deer in the woods. Um, I had to kind of get over that is what I'm saying, because that was definitely a challenge because the number of deer. I mean, how many times have you been you and I have been in the woods together and we tell the story about, you know, the two or three deer out of ahead of us, you know, 25, 30 yards. You see them clear as day and I can't see them. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of stories like that. and uh, But to some extent, I just had to get over it, right, and say, if I don't see them, fine. Um, you know, the biggest challenge is not that you don't see the deer. It's it's knowing that there's probably deer that I should have seen or could have seen but didn't and then lost the opportunity to take a shot. That's actually, I think, a little more um, uh, frustrating for me than the latter. And I've kind of adapted over the years. Like I say, that's why I, I hunt um, uh, entirely with, with binoculars now. And I scan much more than I ever did before, um, which I know is a little frustrating for you sometimes, Mark, because, you know, that's, that's certainly a risk that I'm going to be spotted. And there's more movement than normally you would, you would have in the woods. But for me, if I can't see them, 
kind of doesn't matter whether it's deer in front of me, right? So, yeah. So that's kind of the technique that I that I use. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, there's there's been a lot of things throughout life um, that I've noticed growing up with you, and and a consistent thing is that that you have always taken the situation head on and never complained about things. You never said, woe is me, or you never would let it really get to you or, or make you give up. You would simply adapt and make the best of situations and then learn how to, to enjoy whatever it was. And I think that's something that you've illustrated in a really clear way with hunting. For me growing up, I, I, I have the tendency, as anyone listening to the show knows, to to get overly wrapped up in the results and to get so mission focused. I'm very achievement oriented, as you know. Um, and you're a great example of you are that way too in many cases, but there are also other parts of your life where you've gotten really good at enjoying things just for the process or just for the activity itself. Results be damned. And, um, and that's a really important reminder for a lot of us to not give up, to not, uh, quit something just because it doesn't come easy for you. But, um, but to 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 push through to persevere to to find the joy in it still um yeah that's go ahead were you going to say something yeah well i was going to say that I, I think i think you can also overcome an awful lot if you just um focus and and try not to get frustrated i think that's uh, um and as you say to persevere um, there's, we're, we are capable of, of, as human beings of much more than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. And, um, and you can overcome lots of different disabilities and challenges and issues, um, through sheer force of will. And, uh, um, and, and sometimes you can't, right? I mean, if a deer's out ahead of me 50 yards or hundred yards, you know, and I can't see it, I can't see it. But as, as we tell the story about the hunt, you know, there's there's some things that happen in that that, uh, you know, if uh, um, if it had been five years ago, 10 years ago, um, I don't think I would have uh, had a chance to, to shoot or, or kill that deer. Um, but because of strategies and techniques and then the um, uh, uh, what I've learned over the years is, you know, by darn, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to accomplish this task. And if I don't, I'm not going to kick myself. I mean, this is not about, about me being um, uh, 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 less than or not capable of. It's, it's, it's life, and we all have those challenges. But that doesn't mean I'm going to let up. and doesn't mean that I'm not going to strive and try to be better at whatever I'm doing and do my best uh, to be the very best that I can be at whatever the task is. And, um, that's, that's kind of the, and that's the way we've lived our lives, Mark. And I think you certainly do too. And I think that's a perfect setup then to move into this hunt. So we did all these things. We did this work. Um, we had this history that kind of was leading us to this hunt, dad, where you and I had hunted together and, and we'd had our challenges and you've had your challenges. And I've wanted to, to, you know, be able to share some hunts with you again in a place where we could see some deer and where you might have a different kind of opportunity all brings us to here to season two of the back 40, the first hunt of the year. We made all these changes. I put a bunch of trail cameras out. 
And at the end of the summer, I started checking them and I started checking them through September. And so prior to our first day of hunting, I pulled up all the trail camera pictures and I showed you all the bucks that have been showing up on the back 40. And yeah. for people that watched last year, you'll know that for the first couple of months, like August and S September, there was hardly any bucks at all, hardly any deer at all. Throughout the hunting season, there was a couple, there was the wide eight that I killed, but there was not a lot of action. Basically one mature buck. Two mature bucks, sorry, but one that just showed up a couple times. Dad, what did you think when I started taking you through the one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine different possible mature bucks that had been moving in and out of the property? Oh, I got pumped. I really got pumped. I really got excited. Just the sheer number and the size and the, just the beautiful deer. Um, and I, what was the count, Mark? 15, I think, at one count of, of uh, relatively mature deer that we'd seen very regularly across all the the uh, cell cams and, and trail cams that you had around the property. I mean, I was I couldn't believe what I saw. Yeah, and I don't I don't remember what the exact number is, but there's at least eight that I showed you in the beginning, and that was three or four year old bucks. I thought were three or four year old bucks. Yeah, so that's right. They're three or sorry, three or older. So there was a handful of two year olds and stuff on there that I don't think I did show you at all. So yes, uh, at a high level, a, a night and day difference as far as the number of deer, both bucks and does using the property, a night and day difference as far as how many bucks and the quality of bucks that are hanging out and hanging around consistently. It wasn't like yeah. it was a one time showing. We are seeing these deer show up on camera over and over and over again. That's what I was impressed by. It's just a resident population of big, mature ducks, bucks. I mean, that was surprising to me. Yeah. So that all led us to hunt number one. I was very excited. You were very excited. Justin, were you excited? What were you thinking at this point? I was excited. I I, I mean, your dad, I'm going to back up here. Um, man, like uh, he... It's amazing because, you know, despite the fact that he was, you know, we've addressed the issue that, you know, of his vision. But, man, I feel like he had such a refreshing way of seeing things that I might be doing in a mundane way that was super inspiring to me. So uh, even even going through those trail cam pictures, you know, like. I mean, like I, I've been to Ken Roven now and I've heard the stories and I've seen the buck wall. And I mean, he like Dave was just so dang pumped to see deer. And that was super fresh for me, you know. So, I mean, he is like uh, Christmas morning every time you flip to a new deer. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. Because uh, I kind of knew what was coming and you were like, what? You went, is that the last one you want to see another and <laughs> yeah he was man, he was just riding the roller coaster it was amazing yeah well and you know some of it was just the contrast from last year too just it was so neat to to see the um, uh the the fruits of your labor mark and the labor of everybody else that went into this so that's i mean yes 
I was really excited to see all these really big deer, <laughs> but I was just really excited that, that you'd been so successful. And again, I think you mentioned it a minute ago, Mark, but I, I guess to me, these weren't passing through deer. They were resident on the property. You saw them in the mornings, you saw them at night, you saw them a week later. They were staying in that area, which I think to me indicated that there's a lot they want in that property. They aren't just passing through. So yeah, it was, I was really excited. I admit it. And that probably set me up a little bit for the first time yeah. <laughs> in a good and a bad way. All right. So it's night number one. We're very excited. We saw a bunch of bucks on trail camera. Um, all this work had been put into the property. We're set up in this tower blind that is right on the edge of the honey hole. So we have like the best bedding area in the property with a beautiful little green food plot right next to it. And then our tower blind on the downwind side of all that. There's a oak tree just on the edge of the honey hole. It's dropping acorns. Um, I have a camera in there, a cell camera that was telling us that deer had been in there a lot and coming out. I had another camera about a hundred yards behind us, downwind of us. Well, not quite downwind, but but down and to the south of us that had been getting a lot of bucks going that way. So I knew we were in between the two. And all of that told me that this should be a really, really good spot. This should be a good night. We got all settled in there. Um, it looked beautiful. I mean, it, it really, it looked like the way things are supposed to look <laughs> when you're going to have a hunt, right? Like you're sitting there like, oh yeah, this looks, <laughs> this looks good, right? Yeah. Um, just add. Just add what? Just add deer. Exactly. Just add deer. And, uh, and dad, you want to, you want to walk us through the, uh, the rest of the hunt and the deer sightings because Justin oh, made a, sure. Justin made a great point. You were like a kid in the candy store every time we saw something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I was really excited, obviously, and um, was overlooking this this food plot. The other thing I, I don't think you mentioned, it, Mark, is that there was another food plot a little bit to the it would have been the north, right? Yeah, um, that we kind of overlooked, and we were watching the main food plot. Going back to the the elevator blinds and the way these these windows worked and stuff, the visibility, the ability to be able to see across this food plot was just incredible. It was amazing. And we thought we'd see deer coming out of the honey hole into the food plot, um, maybe from the left, from the field out to the left that might come in, or as Mark indicated, from the back. I don't think, Mark, that we expected the deer to come from where they came from. Did we? Did you? I knew that some would, you know, last year I saw some deer were going to that plot. Um, I Did didn't, you? I didn't expect the vast or all of the deer to come out there though. I didn't expect yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That to me, I was just really surprised uh, by that. But anyway, so we went through the night really excited. Um, the sun, so we're facing West pretty much due West, maybe a little bit, um, Northwest, but so we were seeing the sunset as it came down. It was just a beautiful day. And, uh, uh, we get to maybe six o'clock or so, you know, the long shadows were forming across kind of bewitching hour. And, uh, um, and, you know, out, I think it was you, Mark, that saw it first. There was a, a deer that came from to, to this, uh, food plot to the North. That's just adjacent to the one we were really overlooking and came from the left, from the West out into this food plot, just feeding. Um, and I can't remember, Mark, if that was a, that was a doe, the first year I think we saw, wasn't it? Or first, Justin? First one was a year and a half old buck. That was the year and a half. Well, was that the one? Oh, it was probably yep. the one, wasn't it? it? Well, no, yeah, it, that was it the wasn't. One. It wasn't. It was a spike. Okay. Um, it was a spike, yeah. And you know what? Let's, let's, uh, let's hit pause here because there's sure. one thing that happened before the deer showed up that's important to point out. Before the deer came out, we had a little conversation. We said, okay, Dad, oh, yeah. what oh. are 
<laughs> what are the what are the goals or standards for the hunt tonight? What do you want to shoot? And so walk me through what you decide you wanted to do for night number one and, and through the rest of the hunt. Because right for me, right, I target mature bucks. That's like my thing. Right. But given everything we've talked about, that's not necessarily your thing. What was your plan? Yeah. So as I thought it was perfectly logical, right? Took a very logical approach. We have uh, um, five nights to hunt uh, at that point. And I said, well, you know, since we have so much time, we've got this all planned out. We've got uh, three different places we can hunt throughout the property. You know, I'm going to go after a two or three year old deer tonight and and go after a mature buck um, for me anyway, a relatively mature buck. And, um, you know, I'm going to be a little pickier and then uh, maybe a bit a little less picky tomorrow. And then the last couple of days of the hunt, uh, if I hadn't shot anything by then, then I'll, you know, I'll bring my standards down and, and shoot anything that's legal at that point. And uh, so that's essentially what I said, right, Mark? Yeah. And I think you said, you even more specifically said you wanted to shoot one of those target buck the first night. Yeah, I did. Um, that's right. One of those those big eight ones. Um, yeah. I think you called it the heavy eight. That was the one that I was targeting. Well, he was the one you really wanted was the heavy eight, but then there was another yeah. like six or seven other like nice three-year-old or older bucks that have been showing up. Yeah. Believe me, I wasn't going to be real picky. I wouldn't take any of them. Yeah. They're all, they're all nice deer. Um, that, that felt really doable that first night as well. It did. It did. Yeah. Especially after seeing all the uh, trail cam pictures. Yeah. So, okay. So as you stated, that first deer stepped out in the neighboring field. It was a year and a half old spike or fork or something. And you were excited. We're seeing deer and you could see it well too, right? With your binoculars on that. F- yeah, I could see it well from the binoculars. Right. It was still probably 7,500 yards away. It was a ways away, but I could see it. Yeah. Um, the, the lighting was good. You know, he uh, was down feeding. Um, he walked a little bit. And then a few minutes later, Mark said, oh, there's another buck coming or another deer coming. Again, I can't remember if that was, you know, um, by the time we're done, we saw so many deer. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it was, it was one of the most exciting hunts of my life, even though, even though ultimately, uh, you know, it didn't work out. It was the most exciting hunt of my life, I think, um, short of the other night. So just because of the number of deer we saw. Yeah. So eventually at one point there was four different bucks in the food plot. Which had you ever seen four bucks at once ever before? No, I haven't. No. Yeah. No. So four bucks, and they were both all they were fighting. So it was two pairs of two sparring with each other in the food plot. Yeah. Which yeah. Uh, which is really cool. You'd never seen deer fight before. No, I hadn't. Nope. Um. So there was a whole lot of firsts happening. That was there was so it was. I had leading into this hunt anxiety around. I just wanted to give you a show, like a really good time. I wanted this to be like what you dreamed it would be. So yeah. when those buck, when the first buck came out and the second buck and I saw how excited you were and then a third yeah. one and a fourth one, you were saying, I've never seen this. And you were so excited right there. I was like, <laughs> yes, I did it. Like we did it. Yeah. This is, this is it. This is awesome. There were yeah. deer in the property. You were really excited about doing something, seeing something you've never seen before. It was, it was, that was a super cool moment. Um, so the bucks are fighting, some does come out, it's awesome. And I'm telling you all, okay, that's a year and a half old spike. That's a year and a half old four pointer. That's a year and a half old uh, six pointer. That's a year and a half old seven pointer. Um, but they're all just year and a half and they're doing the thing, they're doing the thing. And then eventually some of them start kind of walking our way. So going from field five towards us in field six. Um, and how about, so this is all happening. We're, we're, 
watching it. We're excited. Um, but they then start coming into our plot. And I'm going to let you take it from here, Dad. The four-pointer and the seven-pointer, two year-and-a-half-olds, step into our side of the fence row. So there's like a tree line between these two food plots. They step onto our side. Um, take it from there. Yeah, so the uh, uh, the seven-pointer came in, and he's probably, would you say, 35 yards, Mark? 30, oh. 35 yards? Well, you're really, you're really, you're really fast-forwarding here. Uh, I was going to give a little more in between. So um, so they're over in the tree line, and they're like, oh, man, they're coming in, they're coming in. I'm like, yep, he's at 70 yards. Um, just that year and a half old, though. And then mm-hmm. he keeps walking closer, and... And then I see you pull your crossbow up, and I'm like, all right, uh, well, he's coming in. It's your hunt, Dad. You do whatever you want, but just just a year and a half old. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then I'll let you take it from here. Things progressed so quickly there. <laughs> they, they did. And, 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 of course, I didn't know appropriate uh, deer hunting etiquette applied <laughs> with my son. Right? So, so, you know, I brought up, the, brought up the crossbow. And, of course, all the conversation we had had at the beginning of the night I just totally forgot, quite honestly. I, I got pumped. I got pumped. These deer coming across the field. And I brought up the crossbow and, uh, um, you know, put the, the scope on that, uh, that seven-pointer. Now, he was moving not, not real fast, but he was moving a bit. And um, he came across the, uh, uh, the field and or the, the food plot. And I think, you know, I, I definitely had a case of deer fever or buck fever going and uh, as he was coming across, he turned a little bit towards us. And I think at that point, so I, I, neither one of you, I think, noticed if I, I turned or I uh, uh, took my safety off. But at that point, I decided, didn't verbalize it apparently, but I decided I was going to take this deer. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of chatter going on in Dave's mind. Yeah. Yes. There, there's a lot of, oh, shoot. Uh, uh-huh. what should I do? Oh, shoot. Yeah. You, you know, Justin, it wasn't a whole lot of chatter. It was just, I just, for whatever reason, when I saw that deer, it got to that point. I just said, I'm going to do it. I just didn't share. It wasn't my inside voice. It was my outside voice. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, crap. I don't know what he's about to do, but I got to try and move this camera. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, um, I, I think at that point I was shaking pretty good and excited and just uh determined to to take this deer and put it uh put it on the deer um again i don't think mark had any idea i was going to shoot i did the cro- <laughs> i you know i wasn't <laughs> the, the the deer just jumped in the air and ran back towards the uh uh towards the wood line at the far end of the food plot and and quite honestly, I didn't know if I'd hit him or not. I, I didn't get a good view as the as the bolt came out of the crossbow and didn't know. Mark almost immediately said, Dad, I think it went over his back. You know, think you think you missed it. Ninety-nine percent sure that we probably missed it. And I'm kind of thinking my back went, how do you know? You, you didn't shoot it. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, then I thought, you know, he's probably right and I'm probably wrong. But uh, and then of course the adrenaline starts winding down and I'm thinking, Oh crap. Now the good news is I'd much rather miss a deer than wounded deer. Um, so on the one hand, um, you know, I'm feeling really disappointed that I probably missed this deer, but the other part of me is saying, well, yeah, but you know, I'd rather do that than take a bad shot and, and have an animal that's eventually going to die out in the woods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And so I, you know, kind of did the adrenaline crash, right? So this is this is the proverbial roller coaster, you know, the adrenaline rush and the adrenaline crash. And as we're sitting there talking about it, et cetera, and I'm thinking about the events that occurred, et cetera. Now it's getting closer to what would you guys say, six twenty-five, you know, maybe fifteen, twenty minutes before, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe half an hour before uh, last light. And suddenly Mark says, "Mark here." <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, here comes another deer coming from that same food plot to the uh, to the north, um, and the same path that the other deer took. And uh, again, um, again, Mark, I don't remember if that was the the one of the doe because we did see a couple of doe in that batch. But uh, but there were another four bucks that came across with that too, right? Yeah, this was right at last light with like ten minutes left of daylight or fifteen minutes of daylight, and yeah, another four bucks came across the way heading towards us and then two of these bucks were shooters um one was like a tight and tall i think eight or nine pointer mm-hmm. and the other one was uh the buck we're calling little droppy a beautiful 10 pointer with a kind of a drop tine coming off of his main beam uh yeah real nice buck and they they were coming in but uh kind of hung up at about 80 yards just on the edge of the the kind of connecting point between the two plots and they hung up there. It's kind of looking around and weren't really happy with the situation. Um, and it should be pointed out that after you shot at that buck, it spooked a whole bunch of does and other young bucks and then oh, some yeah. does behind us. So for like a half hour, yeah. 40 minutes, we had does blowing behind us and all sorts of crap. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, so yeah. there was some commotion there. So I don't know what, but those bucks came and just didn't quite like the situation, but they didn't spook. They just stopped and then fed right there uh, until yeah. dark. And that was, uh, and that was the night. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often as the case, those guys were onto something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Just going back to emotionally, for me, it was one of the um, neatest experiences and the best hunt I've ever had just because of the ups and downs and the number of deer we saw, right? And uh, just the way they came in. And I mean, it was just really exciting. So I had a ball, even though I, you know, shot and missed a deer, I had a ball. And it's just amazing to me that those, uh, you know, four or five, six deer that came in after the, the shot still came in. And even though they didn't come quite into our food pot, um, you know, they, they didn't seem like they were terribly bothered. They didn't seem spooked at all. I like your optimism. Um, <laughs> they were a little bothered. They were definitely they were definitely on edge, um, but not so much that they didn't leave. They, but they were head up, staring in our direction for a while, and just you know, they were something was off. But not so much that they left. So, uh, I, I, you're very happy and you're very uh, upbeat right now because of how it all ended. <laughs> Yeah, but we need to talk about how you felt that night because yeah. when the night ended and we filmed all the crap way to film and we went and we looked for your bolt and we double checked and we watched the footage to make sure we didn't see a hit and we went and searched yeah. and searched for any blood, made sure there was no blood, made sure all that stuff. So it took a long time. We finally got back to the truck, um, and you and I were driving home. Um, you weren't all fuzzy, smiley, happy, best hunt of my life that night. And right, I think it's worth right. talking about this because a lot of people have missed deer. A lot of people will miss deer. This is something that we all kind of have to deal with at one point or another. Um, talk to me about that. How how were you processing it? How were you thinking about it? Uh, you, were, you were pretty low at the moment. Yeah, you know, um, I think it was really when Justin uh, went back and went through frame by frame and saw the bolt go over the deer's back. That's when I realized, because I, you know, uh, I was still holding out some hope that maybe, you know, we had gotten a good hit, and and that he just, you know, that he's back behind the the food plot and that uh, and back in the honey hole, right, waiting for us to pick him up. So once once I heard that from from uh, Justin again, you know, I'm kind of looking at the bright side. I'm glad I didn't wound the deer. I'd rather miss him than wound him. But yeah, Mark, and I'm thinking. Um, you know, shoot, uh, especially with all the talk and especially with all the preparation, um, you know, I still miss the deer. Now, I know some of that was was uh, a little bit of buck fever, but, you know, I, I take that very seriously and I'm not frivolous and, uh, you know, I don't shoot wild. I'm very intentional about shooting any animal, right, because we were taught that as kids. You know, you respect nature and respect the animals. You, If you're going to shoot them, you shoot to kill. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was discouraged uh, Monday night and, uh, you know, thinking about. <laughs> so I, I didn't tell you this, Mark. But I, I actually, you know, I told mom later on, I said, well, you know, seriously, Monday night, I was almost thinking about saying, hey, Mark, you know, maybe maybe we ought to call it. And, you know, you can go hunt for the next three or four days and um, then you have a chance of getting one of these big deer. I don't want to miss another deer out there and I don't want to, you know, uh, 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 you know, provide a, a bad perspective for you and, and the, the group. But um, as we talked about it on the way back and as I thought about it more that night and then uh, Tuesday, of course, well, I guess a couple of things. One is uh, we did a lot of shooting on Tuesday 
And um, that was really helpful for me. Not that I hadn't practiced uh, quite a bit before, but but there was just, I think, just um, taking that time in the in the um, um, uh, in the having had that experience on Monday night with the hunt um, really forced me, I think, to do a couple of things. Uh, one was to to really look at my technique. We did sight in the crossbow and we, I think we found that the sighting wasn't quite right, whether that I can't blame the miss on that, but, um, it certainly impacted my confidence. Um, when I saw that, you know, that, the that the, uh, it wasn't sighted in properly to the extent that it should have been either. So I think, you know, doing what we did on Tuesday to, to, uh, practice and, and, uh, sight it in again and do some of the other things we did. And I, and I also kind of uh, stepped back and looked at my technique and evaluated my technique a little bit more and came up with some, um, um, little small things that I think, um, improved my confidence and improved the, you know, my grouping as well. And, um, and I just, I think I decided on Tuesday that, um, I'm going to be, um, a lot more deliberate when I shoot a deer next. And secondly, I'm going to apply some of these, uh, um, these, uh, uh, things that, that we've talked about and that I was trying to practice, uh, on Tuesday. So, yeah. And then, but having said that, I think, um, I was so excited about the number of deer that we had seen and the fact that even after the, the missed shot, we had a large number, including a couple of more mature deer come into, into the shooting area that, uh, I wanted to go back to the honey hole and we debated back and forth and, you know, um, so I'll let you take it from there, Mark, cause you can provide your perspective. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about what's going on here. Um, because again, it was a real inflection point in the whole hunt. Um, and I think maybe even for your future hunts to some degree, um, a lot of new hunters get into this and they right away think that, you know, they can, they're watching people on TV, shoot big mature bucks or shoot deer. And they think they should be able to go out there right away and do it just like they watch or just like they heard on the podcast or just like they've seen in the magazines. And you can learn a lot from listening to a podcast or watching a show or, you know, having a buddy walk you through the woods and talk to you about stuff. But there's some things you can only truly learn and grow from by way of experience. And one of those things is shots at deer. And I think that this is something where you were put in a position that you haven't been in very often. And that, Every time you have this experience, you're going to get a little better at. And there was a lot of stuff that happened that, you know, you hadn't lined up on a deer with a crossbow in, ever or who knows when. I don't know when you've mm-hmm. been able to line up on a deer with a crossbow. But this is something you have not been able to do very often. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to you or to anyone that a lot of things would happen that would be new or surprising, buck fever or whatever. Um so that was something we talked about that night. Another thing we talked about is something that I've had to do when I've missed deer and I've missed plenty over the years. And that is after it happens that night, I'm going to, I'm going to feel the pain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kick myself. I'm going to beat myself up. I'm going to feel how crappy it feels to have missed a deer and to have let myself down in that way. And I'm going to let myself have that but the next day when i wake up now it's done 
What happened happened. The water's under the bridge. I can't change that. All I can change, all I have control over now is what I do next, how I grow from it, how I learn from it, how I move forward. And so everything from day two on is all about growing from it. How do I make sure it doesn't happen again? And so I I basically said, all right, tonight it's shitty. It's okay. You can be mad, go to sleep, lose a little sleep, whatever it is, feel it, fully experience that emotion right now. But tomorrow it's done and over with. We're going to make sure that thing is sighted in amazing. And you're going to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot until you feel 100% confident again. We're going to double check all your equipment to make sure everything's consistent. Everything's the same. We ended up changing your broadheads. We did a few other things to make sure that everything was as as dialed as we possibly could and get you to a place where you felt confident with both your gear and just your mental state, which I think is, is, is important to do both of those things. Yeah, Um, I agree. And so, and so that's what we did. And we decided to go back to the same place the next night because we did see a lot of deer. Uh, we did spook some deer, but other deer still came back. And there was a lot of other deer on camera that weren't there that night that maybe could move through. Um, and it wasn't the best place of anywhere on the farm. I think that was our best spot in general as far as cameras and historical data could tell us. And so we went back in on day two. In my head, I'll tell you, Dad, um, you were, you had all your emotions going on after night number one. Mm-hmm. I had a sort of a different set of emotions. Um, you really threw me off when you shot that deer. I'll tell you that first. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you scared the crap out of me. Literally, I, I, I haven't seen the footage, but I have like a verbal, I go, oh, or something. I made some kind of verbal noise when you shot because it scared me so much because I didn't know you were going to do that. Um, but then, you know, it just, it. I saw my plan coming together exactly how I thought it was going to come together. And then this changed it. And <laughs> my, all like my specific hopes and dreams for what I thought was going to happen and the big buck coming for it, all that like kind of shattered down around me. And so my selfish side in my head was thinking, oh shit, this is screwing everything up. Uh, what are we going to do? This could blow up the whole area. How are we going to make yeah. up for this tomorrow? Is tomorrow going to be horrible? Um, you know, I, I got, I got negative in my head too. And so I kind of had to go through a similar mental talk kind of situation as, as you had to do your own thing. I had my own thing where I had to say, okay, that happened. What happened happened. That's hunting. Things happen. Uh, how do we carry on to the next day? And so, and so eventually we made the decision we made and I think we can move through hunt number two pretty quick because we went in there and I was moderately optimistic, uh, was mostly just hopeful. Um, you seem to be very optimistic. Um, but in the back of my head, I was thinking, well, we did, we did spook some deer. We did have to walk all over the food plot, looking for the bolts and everything and for blood. Um, we certainly made an impact. My hope was just that there was enough other targets in the area and you weren't quite as picky that night that we could get away with it. Um, but in short, it was a rough night. We only saw three deer total. Um, one doe and two year and a half old bucks and, um, very slow and definitely had that feeling like, oh no, um, look how different it was from night number one to night number two, dramatic difference. And, uh, the weather was changing, getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Weather was looking bad. The deer sightings were looking bad. And, uh, by the end of night number two, which is technically night number three of the trip, because we also hunted one day up at Kenrovan, um, So we're now 50% done with our trip. 
down to the last three days. And um, now I'm starting to think, oh boy, are we in trouble here a little bit? Um, what are you thinking, Justin or Dad? Any thoughts after night number two different than that? Well, I wasn't going to be picky about the deer. I think I mentioned that to you too, Mark. Right? So I was going to, if, if there was a, uh, a legal um, three on a side, I was going to take it. That night number two, no. <laughs> night number two, you said you're holding out for two-year-old. Yeah, I'm talking about night number three. So yeah. by the time we went to night number three, I wasn't going to be picky. Okay, so you're fast-forwarding a little bit. But I, was, I wanted to get Justin's thoughts or your thoughts still just night number two. Any thoughts after that? Justin, anything? Where your where was your head at? I had I still had high hopes. I know I knew that we had buggered things a bit on night one. Uh, I I was like you though. I know we were like fifty fifty on what we should do. We had a fresh blind that seemed like it would produce, but um, you know I think we calculated that 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 was the best sit night number two and. Uh, I mean, I was glad to see deer and we saw, you know, that first doe popped out pretty early. And so I was like, oh man, like this really could, this really could go well still. And, uh, yeah, as, as it got darker, I more and more air (laughs) went out of my balloon as I'm sure it did both you guys too. Um, but man, I like just knowing the property now and seeing the activity, I still had, I still had high hopes that like we could pull it off and obviously uh, establishing that Dave's standards aren't uh, that they, it's a moving target. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Like I knew that we would come across something that would make him happy. Yes. Um, I think that, I think that I still felt, my mind told me what you're telling me, Justin, that we would have an opportunity and that things would happen. But a little bit of my gut, a little bit of my soul was starting to see little reminders of last year. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I yeah, see that. I was like, oh, please don't let night number one just be an anomaly. Don't let it yeah. have been this like crazy, amazing fluke of a night. And then very quickly, or the other thing I thought, especially by partway through hunt number three, I'm thinking, my gosh, these are the most on-edge deer I've ever seen. I mean, Michigan deer in general are very, very affected by hunting pressure, and they're very, very edgy, and they are I feel like you can't make many mistakes at all with them. But it, from night number one to night number two and part of three, I was thinking, my goodness, this thing went from full of deer to empty in 24 hours. Uh, these guys are just on eggshells, if that's the case. Um, yeah. So I had this little whisper of negativity in the back of my mind that was like, back 40, 2019, all over again. And, yeah. uh, well, and, and like you said before, Mark, I mean, it kept getting warmer, right? So each day we were five degrees warmer than the previous day. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah. Which brings us all to the la- to night number three. Um, we decide to go back to the area that you and I had hunted last year. So this is field number four, but now instead of being in a ground blind down at the bottom of a hill on the edge of the timber looking out, now we're on a hill looking back towards the timber up high, and we have the bedding areas in front of us and to the side of us. We have tall sorghum on three sides, and we have this beautiful lush green food plot that runs along our west and south. 
Uh, right? Yeah, west and south. Yeah. And uh, again, great view from up there, right? And uh, certainly seemed like there should be deer coming out of this neighboring timber, uh, which historically they had. Um, so I think we had decent hopes. And you had said that night, right? You were readjusting your expectations again, right? I think I think what you said was if it was a, a nice year and a half old, I'll take them now. Right, right, exactly. You know, Mark, the, the other thing I would say is I think that was the best example of kind of bringing together all the different habitat improvements and and things that you had done to really set up that that space kind of came all together at that location from what I could see. You know, you had four plantings of sorghum on, almost on each side of us that provided that 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 barrier and that protection. The food plot was beautiful. I mean, I, that came in so well. It was just lush. And uh, and then, as you said, you know, we're looking back uh, towards the woods where the blind was that we sat in last year. And that also was really thick and looked like an ideal place for deer to come out of their beds and, and, and into the, the field and then ultimately into the food plot. It looked like a perfect setup. Now, we had a strong wind coming from the west, um, but we had the strong wind. I think even on the first night, we had a pretty strong wind. Um, but it was, again, perfect direction. Um, it seemed like a beautiful setup and, and a kind of the culmination of all the work that you guys have done in the, in the, uh, on the property, from what I could tell, looked like it all came together at that location. And I, so, you know, maybe I'm the eternal optimist, but I was really excited about Wednesday night, too, yeah. um, with a little, you know, a little bit of humility coming out of uh, Tuesday night. You know, unlike, um, I, you know, I guess I could have really been discouraged about Tuesday night and only seeing three deer. But one thing that I was really encouraged about uh, coming out of that, the silver lining was we didn't blow out one of these other really good locations, other one of the, you know, the other two uh, elevated blinds. And you had told me that, you know, next we'd probably go after the location that we had uh, seen the deer last year at. So I was pretty excited about that. And then the first hour passed and we saw zero deer. Yeah. And yeah. then the and second hour passed. Second hour passed, yeah. And we saw zero deer. And yeah. the third hour passed. Yeah. And we saw zero deer. And uh and this is when my my whisper really became a loud whisper. This became like a Dave Kennedy in the blind whisper. That is <laughs> <laughs> that's more of like a hey, what about that one thing we did? <laughs> or or my cough, Mark. Yeah. Or your throat clearing. <laughs> yeah, this is the um <clears throat> <laughs> but all the things you shouldn't do in the blind. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's so funny being an adult and sitting with your dad again after you used to sit with him when you were a little kid. And like all those things come rushing back to you when you're an adult and you're sitting in the blind with him. <laughs> Why did I ever listen to him when I was ten years old? Right? I'm gonna put together a collage after this project's done of all your facial expressions of every noise that your dad made in the blind. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how hard, Justin, I was trying to be nice during those moments. <laughs> it, was, it was so bad that it started to wear off on me and I would have the same expression that you would. <laughs> you, were just so, you were so appalled at everything. <laughs> Well, you know, the good news is I was oblivious to it all. <laughs> that was the perk with growing up with dad. You never you, you never knew the bad looks I was giving him. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, I, I, the problem here is that 
I am so, and I, we, we even joked that night because we're sitting there and I'm yeah. so focused. I'm glassing nonstop. I'm really trying to see a deer. I'm thinking in my head, dad keeps lifting his binoculars up and down all the time. And the sun's <laughs> shining. And if a deer pops out, he's going to see us right away. And I want this hunt to come together so badly. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, I have to be watching the woods. I need to see these deer when they're 15 yards in the woods still and tell everyone to stop moving. Because if those if these deer pop out, they're gonna spot us. So I'm thinking that glassing. And the whole time I'm doing that, you two are laughing and telling recipe stories and talking about different <laughs> different food you wanna make. <laughs> I'm finally like, what are you guys doing over here? You're like a couple of housewives exchanging the latest fish fry. <laughs> we, were, we were making the best out of a dud hunting situation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we're walking just, away with something. Right. And, uh, you know, finally we get to the point where Mark's about ready to do clothes, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and and yes, and I I I want to finish my thought there though, which is that I get too intense sometimes, and I need to relax a little bit. And Dad, you do a great job of the opposite, staying nice and relaxed and happy. <laughs> And so <laughs> at times, at times it wears on me, but I'm very glad that you do it. And I'm glad that you are your own person out there and having a good time. <laughs> and and uh, I'm glad that Justin got to document that interesting father-son dynamic. <laughs> I almost brought a, bought a pressure cooker today, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I know what I'm buying Mark for Christmas. Instead <laughs> yeah. of earplugs. A better attitude. A better attitude. <laughs> hey, now, we eventually got you two uh, children focused and dialed in on what we were trying to do. And it does get to an hour until dark. And we still haven't seen a deer. And we do a little uh, little dialogue session where, I, where I'm talking about, ah, it's an hour left. And this has got to be when it's going to happen. And still no deer. And then it gets to 30 minutes of daylight left and still no deer. And I remember saying at that point, I was feeling pretty down in my head. Um, thinking, man, zero deer tonight. Um, and then it was gonna be like 75 degrees the next day or something. And yeah, I was feeling pretty bummed, but then I was kept on reminding myself. And then I said it out loud to you, dad, I don't know if you remember, but I said, I've had so many hunts like this where it looks horrible and it's seeming like it's going to be a complete dud. I do remember that, Mark. I remember that. And it can all change. It all changes in a second. Just in a flip of a switch, it happens. And And it might have been 30 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long it was after saying that, but very soon after saying that, um, what happened? So you said, Dad, Dad, there's a buck coming out of the woods. And that deer came out. And that, again, I didn't see it. So you have to fill in that gap, Mark, because I didn't see it come out of the woods. I didn't see it come across the field. Well, I didn't I, see it till it came to the food pot. Yeah, so Justin. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to mention I stopped talking about recipes long enough to point out <laughs> that there was a deer hitting a scrape on the edge of the wood line. Yes. Oh, so you saw it first, Justin? Yeah. I thought it was Mark. Oh, I, I forgot that. No, okay. Justin. Justin got two gold stars for doing this. He got the spot there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so he spotted. I pull up. I see him right away there. And it was his antlers are up in the tree working a scrape. And right away I said, "Nice year and a half old seven pointer," uh, is what I thought. And um, and basically was seeing him and thinking to myself, "Man, that's that's 
that's a deer you would shoot. Uh, I basically said that's, that's a shooter dead. Um, and so the deer then starts walking our way. I mean, he came out of the timber in front of us and just a little bit to the west. And then he, you know, he, you tell exactly where he was coming. He was coming right to that food plot, straight up wind yeah. of us, right yeah. to where your beautiful, clear shot into the food plot would be. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, this is exactly like we wanted to write it up. And actually, I, I think yeah. I, I told, I told you this late, well, I told you this before the hunt and after the hunt, but when I was setting up this blind with Tony in the summer, I even said, I bet you this is going to be where my dad kills one. We're going to go right back to the same place we went last year. He's going to yeah. come out of this timber. He's going to walk across up towards this food plot, and he's going to get a shot. And I kind of acted yeah. it all out. Um, and it didn't come exactly the, the route I thought he would take, but he comes walking in. And I just remember thinking, we can't screw this up. So... The deer's walking, and I'm like, I'm whispering, telling you, you gotta get turned dead, shoot out the window, and trying to ask Justin, like, are you on him? Can you see him? And the deer stops at like 50 yards and kind of stares in our direction. And this was that moment where it's like, okay, is this happening or not? That was the moment right. of truth. And yeah. I was just heart running a million miles a minute. And then he put his head down and kept walking. And the, the brush and grass is so tall, all you could see was the tips of his antlers almost over most of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but he's coming right in and basically from there, it was, from there, it was all on you. Um, yeah, so, so now walk so he, me through what you were thinking when, when you heard there was a buck and I said, right. it's a, it's a nice year and a half old seven pointer. Now walk me through your mind as this is all happening. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, I unlike Monday night, I was very calm that night on Wednesday night. So I didn't, uh, I, no buck fever, uh, what adrenaline I had was apparently not so much that it, you know, uh, the big thing that happened though, Mark, is you said that's coming in the food pot and now by this time, we're probably 10 minutes from, from last light, right? I mean, it's getting dark. We're still 10 minutes from shooting light, but I'm looking out in the food pot. I can't see it. It's, and it's mostly, <laughs> I think, because it's so it's, you know, that everything's looking kind of the same color of, of gray. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, crap, you know, here you've got this nice deer, finally come out, it's coming to the food pot, it's right in front of me. You ranged it, I think, at 34 yards. Yeah. Um, and I can't see it. And uh, so I brought up my uh, crossbow, uh, scoped in the general area where I thought the deer was, and thank God I could see the deer through the scope. And, uh, um, you know, I, and, and I did the obligatory, Mark, I think I'm going to take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Justin got on him and I, uh, uh, you know, brought the crossbow up and used a couple of the techniques that, uh, that I had, uh, kind of, uh, uh, learned and perfected a little bit on Tuesday in the shooting that we did. And it, it just went one, two, three. I mean, I didn't have any, any of the, um, buck fever that I had on Monday night, just put right behind his shoulder and pulled the trigger and, he uh, immediately, I think you immediately, Mark, and I knew that I had him because you could, you know, obviously hear the sound and, but you knew right away, Mark, right? You said, you got him, good shot. And he ran 80 yards right in the middle of the food plot and dropped. Yeah. And we could see him at the top of the hill. What'd you think about that? You know, it, it's, it's the funniest thing. It was just such, it was so surreal. I think, I think that, um, well, I was so excited to see that he came in when he did, but I was so intentional 
intentionally focused on making sure I didn't miss this deer that, you know, <laughs> it was surreal to pull the, pull the triggers, see the, the, the bolt go through them and then have them run up and drop. That it was kind of like, Oh, I just shot a deer. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't until, you know, a few minutes later that it just, just hit me hard that, uh, that it actually, you know, got it done and he's there and he's not, you know, he's not running into the woods with a bolt, you know, uh, over his back. So yeah, it was great. And we ended up having a bunch of deer pile out in the next five minutes after that. Oh yeah. That was the other thing that's funny, just like Monday night, right? So shoot the deer and that seems to be the trigger that brings a bunch of other deer. Out of the woods. Yeah. guess we got to learn that for next time. Run. Yeah, yeah. saw a bunch of deer and even saw the deer you missed on night number one. He came back yeah. and was 20 yards behind us. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I was so, so excited for you and uh, yeah. thrilled that it all worked out. And it was it was super cool. The only thing the only thing I regret a little bit, not regret, but it just is the nature of of the beast of what we were doing is that. I felt like you never really got to celebrate it fully because we had to film this thing, then we had to go and walk over here and film this thing, then we had to go walk over there. And there was just so much work around it to film this show that yeah. I don't think you ever, I mean, I know you eventually did, but there was a lot of rigmarole that had to be layered into it for you to just get to enjoy your moment. So from, I, I don't know, do you... Did you get to enjoy the moment still? Did you, did you get to soak it in enough? Oh, yeah. You know, I think I, when I really did, because, again, I, I, I don't quite know how to describe the emotions that I was feeling at the time because it was in stark contrast to Sunday night or uh, Monday night. Um, it was I, it was unbelievable, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. It was almost like somebody needed to pinch me and say, you really did shoot the deer. Um, it wasn't until Justin did his, you know, uh, 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 portrait pictures with me and the deer that it really kind of sank in. And then when you and I gutted it, um, that, you know, I, it's, it was a surreal experience and seeing how the sausage is made is also really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that thing, the, the filming of the show. Yeah. Yeah. The whole filming of the show and all the process you guys go through and you know, the, the retakes and the, you know, all the other things. Um, it, it was, it was really quite the experience. And I just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that was kind of it's interesting again i think it kind of had the long the long boil with the uh um the celebration of shooting the deer um you know when i talked to mom on the way home that was part of it talking to my friends on on thursday about it going back out there on thursday and maybe to some extent just seeing where we shot the deer seeing the blind walking through it all again was uh it really got me pumped again and and really excited about what happened so yeah it was it was phenomenal the whole thing was just great any thoughts from you justin on how that all went down yeah i dave went from being like giddy on night one to like being stone stone cold and (laughs) he shot he shot that deer and i thought you and i were gonna lose it like we were, we were both shaken, and Dave's just putting his crossbow away, like he just ate a sandwich. Like, I yeah, I, I you know felt like, I mean, we all rode the roller coaster together, you know, like yeah. Monday, seeing what happened on Monday and having high hopes, and obviously, like I know you had plans, your plans for your dad, um, but it was cool to see. Um, 
I mean, I don't think he could have been happier, man. And and like you said, like it it as much as a process it is to film this stuff and and whatnot, it, it in a way he did get to relive it so many times. I mean, it it does get to be stretched out. I mean, you know, the next day at your house and and yeah. Getting to oh, you're it. right. And uh, yeah. you know, it it kind of you know when I shoot a deer, it's like I go. I get, you know, 30 minutes and then go drop it off process or whatever. And like it, so it, it did have a cool sense of, I mean, for the story and the way it went down and, and hearing the history that you guys have at Kenrove and, and man, it was just like the perfect culmination to, to those, to that week. Yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. It was, um, it was really cool to see how much, just to see you having a good time out there, Dad. To, to be able to, yeah. uh, after everything that you've, you know, to to be a son for a moment here, for after everything that you've done for me and all the things you introduced me to, and 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 how you raised me to be the person I am now, and to give me these opportunities that I have now, and to hunt and to do the things I love, um, but knowing that you know, you hadn't been able to have some of these experiences that I now get to have a lot. Uh, I just so badly wanted you to get that reward that I knew you deserved and to see you get your first deer with a bow and your biggest buck yet. And, and to have these kinds of fun sightings and see a bunch of deer and see a bunch of bucks and see bucks fighting and see your biggest buck and all that stuff. It was, it was like a dream come true for me too. So, um, I just, no one deserves it more. And I was really, really happy for you. And, um, you have all my life inspired me with how you push through tough things and and uh, achieve incredible things despite whatever obstacle might be in the in front of you. This is just another perfect example of that, um, where a cruddy thing happened and you dealt with it and you pushed through it and you kept a good attitude and a smile on your face. And here we are couple days later and you're cool as a cucumber you learned you adapted you pushed through and you uh you did a great thing so it was just a terrific moment as a son it was a terrific learning experience um you continue to inspire me and and many others i think too and uh put a hell of a shot in that buck too so it was just really cool all the way around and i don't know dad i think i should let you wrap it up here if you have any final thoughts on the experience or any final takeaways from what you learned or uh, I don't know anything this whole journey you've been on as a, as a bow hunter and the ups and downs and where all this has taken you um, or any thoughts for other people that have struggled as new hunters or hunters who have dealt with uh, anything. Um, I don't know. What's, what are your parting words for folks listening um, to this story? Well, you know, I guess what I would say, Mark, first of all, thank you. And, and it was an amazing trip. And I really just just it was incredible. It was the best hunting experience of my entire life. Um, and thank you, Justin, for being a part of that as well. And just being a, a really good uh, comrade in arms. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all the times you're probably back there giggling at the old man with a crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. I, I think, Mark, for me personally, this has had such a big uh, uh, personal impact in that um, and I've always loved to deer hunt. But for all the things we talked about before, I've never been very good at it. I've always had a sense of, you know, I'm kind of I'm just going through the motions. Right. I'm not going to see a deer even if it walks right out in front of me. Um, 
you know, over the last four, five, six years, um, that's changed a bit um, to a great extent because of you. And um, and that really is neat. Thank you. you you've uh, you've reignited um, my passion for uh, bow hunting in particular, but just hunting in general at a level that it hasn't been in a long time. And that's really neat. It's exciting. I mean, you know, I've, I've bow hunted and I've been out in the woods every year for, well, I don't know, 45 years, whatever. But uh, but I haven't had so much fun and have not nearly have never been as excited as I am about the sport right now. That's awesome. Well, uh, I see more exciting hunts like this in your future, Dad. I know we were already spitballing about some new ideas for next year. So uh, hopefully we can keep keep them coming. And uh, we'll have more podcasts like this next year and the year after that. And before we know it, you're going to be yelling at me for making too much noise in the blind. <laughs> that yeah, will be. Remember, remember, there's only one prophecy that always comes true, Mark. And that's me. Your children treat you the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Everett will be uh, out in the woods one of these days <laughs> and he'll be saying, Dad, you're making too much noise. Dad, let me go first. Dad, yeah. can I have your bow? I need to shoot that deer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're too far off. He was already sneaking around today with his little uh, pretend deer hunting rifle. And I was trying to work and he was trying to hunt. And he was sneaking up and he was grunting at a buck. And I was, I think, talking to his mom. And he turned at me and he literally goes, shh, dada, there's a deer buck. <laughs> so he's, he's well on his way, dad. He's well on his way. <laughs> and uh, I guess with that, guys, uh, thank you both for not only being a part of an awesome hunt, but for now sticking around here tonight, talking all about it and reliving it. It was an awesome experience, an awesome hunt. I can't wait for all of you listening to get to see it. Uh, the episode is going to be on season two of The Back 40, which should be airing this November. Um, so take a look over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Keep an eye out here in the coming weeks. We'll have the first episode coming out very soon. And uh, you can also watch season one there in the Meat Eater YouTube channel right now, which has that first hunt with my dad and I and uh, the hunt when I killed the wide eight and a lot of that background I talked about in the beginning. You can watch some of that too. So uh, with that, I guess we'll wrap it up. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community, for tuning in. Best of luck on your hunts. Get your family members out there, whether it's your son or daughter, wife, father, mother, whatever it is. Uh, these kinds of things that my dad and I got to share are, uh, you know, you, you just you can't put a price tag on it. It's it's special stuff. Go out there, create those memories of your own. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.